Today on the podcast, we have my very good friend Mario Yadguruho to talk about modern art, the art industry, auction houses, Hong Kong, and how crypto um, can impact all of that. The long-awaited opening up of China and Hong Kong has spurred some pretty frenzied imagination on crypto Twitter. At the same time, Hong Kong is advertising itself to be back, open for business, stronger than ever, especially in crypto. Hong Kong is known for many things. It is known for its bomb-ass Cantonese food, as other haters puss it, its financial industry where there are no Ten Commandments, its indisputable status as being the better Singapore. But uh, it is not known for its art sector. You think about uh, Paris, London, New York, uh, maybe Tokyo, Florence, uh, Rome, when you think about great centers of art, but not Hong Kong. The M-plus exhibitions of Yayoi Kusama and people might be challenging and uh, challenging them that perception, might be building a portfolio as a art center, coupled with the an much anticipated Art Basel exhibition uh, coming on in March and April, might put Hong Kong into, into the spotlight and might make Hong Kong into a better known art center, but we shall see. Today, Mario Yaguruho is here to talk about um, well, what, he, what, he, what are his thoughts on the matter? As an introduction, Guruho studied fine art. He's also a sinologist, a military historian, and an artist himself, with uh, some experience in the Hong Kong auction house industry. To begin, perhaps uh, you can uh, tell us more about yourself, perhaps beginning with your name, which I understand to be an alias you put uh, quite a lot of thought into. Well, uh, your introduction was already so generous and charitable, but if I had to add anything, it would be that uh, I'm an amateur linguist specializing in Koreanic and Japonic languages. Uh, I have an obsessive interest in the history of the three kingdoms of Korea, uh, ancient Chinese bronzes, Northeast ceramics in general, Northeast Asian ceramics in general, and uh, cars. So that's where my interests lie, I guess. Let's dive straight into it. Can you tell us about how auction houses work? Like, what are the main players and how do they make their money? Sure. Uh, that's a, it's quite a complicated question. So if I were to give you a succinct answer, auction houses are companies that sell collectible stuff through bids. Uh, they usually acquire sellable objects through consignments, basically stuff offered to them by the owners of the objects. Or in some cases, they buy things from the primary or secondary market to sell at a future auction. Uh, in rare occasions, client relations will reach out to owners of interesting objects and persuade them to sell, perhaps for a promise of a guaranteed payout or some kind of other perk. So they catalog their acquisitions and arrange them into an auction calendar. Uh, most auction houses will have big seasonal sales at fixed times of the year, usually spring and autumn and uh, they organize the smaller and more focused thematic sales to fill in the gaps. All right, so uh, how do they deal with the items and assort them into sales? So most of the biggest names in the business deal with a very broad range of items, including different categories of fine art. There could be uh, at least a dozen to over a hundred, for all I know, uh, and ceramics, watches and clocks, jewelry, and wine. Uh, and the companies are organized into departments according to the item category, and they field specialists who are experts in that area. And they will usually have some sort of relevant academic background or a pre previous professional experience. And these are the people who catalog the consigned items. Uh, they research these items, 
they write about their significance, and they also produce appraisals and price estimates. So basically, they comment on the value, both the historical, cultural, and also the financial value of the consigned pieces. Usually, they partner with business managers who are allocated into the same team who deal with the business side of things. So together, they will chart out which items will be offered at which sale uh, in the calendar. Uh, for anywhere between a few weeks to a month before the sale date, the items that go on sale, uh, we call them lots, will be displayed publicly in the same venue they are to be sold. Uh, these things are called previews and are usually open to the general public, although some are closed to a, a vetted and predetermined list of exclusive individuals. So some of the most important items in these uh, biggest sales may do a world tour many months in advance to excite international interest. And usually these are sold at the big offices, for example, uh, in London or New York. Usually it's New York. Uh, on auction day, the lots are sold in order of lot number in ascending order, with the presiding auctioneer calling out the prices and increasing them in increments as long as there is more than one bidder. So the auctioneer may increase or decrease the bid increments as they see fit to set an appropriate pace. If they think that the auction is getting a little slow, they might decrease the increments to facilitate more bids. If they think that the auction is picking up, uh, they might just say, well, fuck it, let's just do a million dollar increment and uh, increase the price to the next dimension. And if they think that works, that could actually benefit the pace and the excitement inside the room. Uh, and when only one bidder remains, so the final bidder, the auctioneer will ask the room for a final call. And when there are none, they will slam their gavel to announce that bids are closed and the lot is sold, or as some people say, the lot is knocked down. So uh, how do auction houses make money? When a lot is sold, it is sold at what we call a hammer price, but this is not the final price for the buyer. On top of the hammer price, the buyer must pay what we call a buyer's premium, a preset percentage of the hammer price paid directly to the auction house. And buyer's premiums usually come um, in several different uh, categories and groups, and they become smaller as the hammer price increases. Um, Sotheby's at the time of recording charges a whopping 26% for items less than a million US dollars uh, and 20% for anything between a million to 4.5 million and 13.9%, or maybe it was 14, uh, for anything above 4.5 million US dollars in hammer price. So that's quite a big chunk out of the hammer price they're taking out. Uh, in addition to getting paid by the buyer, they also take money from the seller, and we call this a seller's commission. So the consigner would be paying this. Uh, to continue with Sotheby's as an example, they charge 10% of the hammer price. And if the lot sells for above the high estimate price, an auction house may charge an additional so-called performance commission, which is usually at around 2%. So that's a lot of money. Now, it may seem like auction houses are extorting money from both the consigner and buyer, and sometimes that's kind of the case. But it should be noted that auction house margins are often quite thin. Um, they have huge expenses, sunk costs, huge indirect costs and operations costs. And in addition to that, many of the big boys, they have costly fiduciary duties to big shot sellers, uh, a, a sort of financial guarantee, if you will, because they are the fiduciaries of the sellers. And this may cost them a lot of money if a sale goes cold. And uh, the last thing I want to say regarding this is that sometimes auction houses augment their sales figures by venturing into other businesses, uh, usually adjacent businesses. 
Uh, many auction houses enter the secondary market by running permanent sales points, like Philips, which is an auction house known for its uh, formidable presence in the watch market, runs Philips Perpetual, which is basically a big-ass watch shop. Sotheby's runs Buy Now, which sells virtually every category of collectible that they sell at the auctions. And sometimes auction houses may even step into the primary market, which I think is very interesting. Uh, Seoul Auction is a Korean firm, and it runs a subsidiary called Print Bakery, which makes licensed prints for their contracted artists at a relatively affordable price. So I hope that was comprehensive enough. There are some things that I left out, but I think that's the gist of it. Who are the main auction houses? How do they differ in terms of expertise and geographic focus? What are their specialities? The big players are kind of like Pepsi and Coke. Um, you can't really distinguish between them. And uh, the larger an audience gets, I think it dilutes the, uh, the specialty of a company and takes out their unique flavor because they need to cater to a wide range of people and sell a wide range of things. So as for Sotheby's and Christie's, which are commonly regarded as the, the two top players in the market, they have offices in London, New York, Hong Kong, uh, Paris, all the big cities in the West, uh, and of course, uh, Hong Kong, which is a bit of a special city. And uh, sometimes they might have some kind of agency or presence in uh, cities like Beijing or Tokyo or Seoul, uh, and of course, uh, places in other continents as well. So I think generally they have an international reach. The main difference may be in certain categories, for example. Uh, Sotheby's is known for having a very strong uh, footing on Chinese ceramics, and that is in no small part due to the fact that they were the first to enter the uh, Hong Kong market. So I believe the year was 1973, don't quote me on that. That's when Sotheby's Hong Kong first had its, uh, its groundbreaking sale. And if you're in Hong Kong, uh, you tend to absorb the regional specialties when it comes to art. And for Hong Kong, it happened to be Chinese ceramics, Chinese works of art, and Chinese paintings. So um, I, I believe that it would be appropriate to say that the auction house doesn't determine um, what they sell as much as the market that they are in. And of course, the specialists and customers that they have. Uh, as for the smaller ones, they sometimes specialize in um, slightly smaller categories. For example, Philips, as I said, is very strong within the watch industry. And that's because, partly because they managed to uh, work with a very esteemed uh, watch dealer, I would say. Uh, his name is Aural Bex. In this case, uh, a lucrative business venture resulted in an interesting partnership. And for a very small company like Philips to gain some headway, into a large industry that was previously dominated by um, the two big boys. Of course, you also have region-specific auction houses like uh, Poly Auction or uh, China Guardian Auction House. Uh, as you can see from the names, they are mainland Chinese companies uh, with close ties to the Chinese Communist Party. So they would be selling, as you would expect, art that comes from China, uh, usually Chinese antiques with the blessings of the Chinese government. And they have a large presence in China, as you would expect, but also in Hong Kong. I'm not used to thinking of Hong Kong as an art center. Definitely not on the same level as London, Paris or New York. But here you are telling me that Hong Kong is not an insignificant player in the art world. What I'd like to ask is, what are some of the cultural factors and policies responsible for this kind of highly unintuitive development? Um, one possible 
uh, example of a factor that contributes to this uh, that comes to my mind is that I heard that unlike in mainland China, Hong Kong does not forbade the private ownership of antiques. Whereas in China, if you dig up a piece of Oracle bone or some Song Dynasty vase, it is automatically the property of the state. So if you have that, uh, what happens often is that people would carry or smuggle antiques from mainland China, which they cannot sell or trade as freely as they want to, into Hong Kong, where they can sell to an international market. Um, is that one of the possible factors? If not, like, what are some of the uh, other factors that come to contribute Hong Kong's status as an art hub? Well, uh, that's a series of very complex questions compacted into one. Uh, if I were to pick apart the easiest question to answer first, it would be that um, it is somewhat true that in China you cannot own antiques, whereas in Hong Kong you can. Um, there are two parts to this question that I will answer. One is that um, China simply has a lot of tradable Chinese antiques, and this was because during the, um, shall we say, the difficult eras of Chinese communism and in the early history of the People's Republic of China, um, a lot of people fled mainland China with their possessions and sometimes with things that weren't really their possessions to find a new life in Taiwan, in um, Hong Kong, Macau, and oftentimes in Britain and America and other cities in the West. And that is a very big conduit for uh, how Chinese antiques, priceless antiques from the Forbidden City, other uh, imperial um, buildings and private collections got into the hands of people outside of mainland China. So if you go to Hollywood Road in Hong Kong, you will still see remnants of this absolute frenzy of Chinese antiques where you had uh, monumental museum-grade Chinese antiques being sold in open-air markets and being haggled by people who really didn't understand the value of the things that they were buying. And of course, neither did the sellers. So um, Hong Kong had a very big abundance and still does of uh, invaluable Chinese artifacts. The second part to this question is, is that, uh, well, yes, in China, um, as they have a tight control on many things, they obviously have a tight control on uh, their antiques as well. And this is not just China. Uh, Japan and South Korea have very similar provisions to protect their artifacts from, say, leaving the country uh, or uh, being traded by private entities. In fact, for South Korea in particular, a very large portion of the valuable antiques are owned by the government, either through um, expropriation or by buying it from private individuals or pressuring them to sell at a certain price or just having it donated by uh, dying wealthy businessmen or collectors. So um, it's not unique to China the way that they uh, regulate these artifacts, although I am not a, an expert on how it's exactly done. I mean, the simple fact that auctions happen within China to sell these Chinese artifacts, I think is proof enough to uh, disprove the notion that you cannot privately own these artifacts in China. You can own artifacts in China as much as you can own anything else. The government may take it one day, but not because it's an antique, simply because it's China. As to uh, the rest of the question, what makes Hong Kong special? I think it's important to note that Hong Kong is an art hub that is on comparable footing with cities like London and New York, at least from a business standpoint. 
Um, it's a world-class art city and definitely Asia's most important art hub for the last 20 years. I don't think uh, most people would doubt that, certainly for the last uh, uh, 50 or 60 years, because it had a very unique place within the British Empire and uh, its relations with surrounding countries in Asia. Uh, as of now, I believe it commands about a 20 to 23% share of the world's art market, and that's larger than London. That is absolutely huge, especially considering that Hong Kong is a city with about 7 to 8 million people. Uh, but it's no surprise when you think about the fact that it has the world's highest per capita number of billionaires and millionaires, and as well as Rolls Royces, I may add. This is also augmented by the fact that many people from China, from mainland China, and other parts of Asia, mostly I think Southeast Asia, find Hong Kong a very convenient city to just drop by, do their multi-million dollar art shopping, and then dip back to their home countries. Uh, Hong Kong also enjoys a very generous tax policy, a very, very free market, and uh, generally a very good ease of doing business. And in, when it comes to art, there's a lot of logistics that are involved. There's a lot of uh, annoying things and a lot of annoying paperwork that you have to take care of. Hong Kong alleviates that kind of responsibility and makes it a bit easier for these collectors and their associates to do business. So in that sense, I think Hong Kong is an art hub that cannot be undervalued. And that's why I chose Hong Kong for college. Can you uh, comment a little bit more on Hong Kong's art infrastructure? What do you think about the work of, um, done by the folks at M Plus and the West Kowloon Art uh, Sector and the um, Hong Kong Museum of Art? What have they done right and what do they lack? Um, I'll just say three things. One is that I don't really know the folks over there um, and I don't really know what they're doing um, in, ter in terms of what's going on inside. So not the best person to comment on um, how I see the individuals who are running the, the whole enterprise. Uh, so that's that. Two is that um, generally, I think what they're doing is very, very important. And three is that it sh they should have done it much sooner. So to elaborate, Hong Kong right now is doing many things that it should have done much earlier. And the term that you use uh, art infrastructure is very appropriate because art is not just an industry that is an exchange of commodities and services and money. Uh, it involves culture, philosophy, emotions, and many intangible factors that make it a bit, if not a lot more complicated than industries like banking or steel or construction. Uh, that's because when it comes to art, nobody's a fixed buyer. Nobody really needs art, but everyone is a potential buyer, which means that if anyone sees the value of art, they will eventually buy it. And I think it's very easy for people to see the value of art because everybody likes beautiful things. But it's not like building a ship where you need a ship to cross an ocean, uh, to carry goods or to build a navy. And then you seek out a shipbuilder to meet that demand. Not everyone believes art is a necessity, unfortunately, uh, especially when it comes to putting down their hard earned money for artwork to hang at home. And that's why museums and other art infrastructure uh, are a necessity to make people want things they don't they previously felt they didn't need to elevate the general public's desire for beautiful things to educate them on the history and current state of the art industry and to ultimately ignite uh, a sort of culture that has an appetite for art to make them hungry for beautiful things and to demand more from people uh, who are in charge of the art scene be it galleries or uh, people who make 
public installations, people who design architecture, or even officials who plan these kinds of grandiose projects. So it's more heavily centered around creating demand, uh, not just supply. Uh, so you need to build these art museums with the same sense of urgency uh, with which a shipbuilder builds a shipyard. Uh, but the effects of building a museum don't translate directly into profits. And so there's no incentive for one single, single business to undertake such a huge task. And M plus kind of scratches that itch because it's an initiative done um, by the Hong Kong government and by several non-government organizations. And the funding comes from places like the Jockey Club uh, and the SAR, SAR government itself. And, and I think that solves one pretty big issue, which is that in the past, Hong Kong seems to have treated uh, art like the industries it's most familiar with, finance and trade. Uh, it leveraged its advantages of having no value-added tax, being a free port, as well as its ease of doing business, uh, lack of regulation, and of course, bilinguality, the, to be the middleman of art between China and the West, a very simplistic strategy that has worked for it in other industries. And it earned a great deal of money that way, which is why they didn't really see a problem. But a consequence of treating art like a product is that you get treated like a warehouse. Uh, a lot of art that is bought in Hong Kong simply does not remain there. So it is a warehouse where you just pick up your stuff, you pay your money, and then you leave to put it back in your beautiful home in another country. So my question is, who cares where the piece was bought? Uh, the, the only two places that matter uh, are where it was painted and where it is now. Uh, places like M Plus provide a permanent place where art can stay and where art can live. Uh, and to level up Hong Kong's collective art portfolio, um, M Plus will do wonders for that. I mean, you have flocks of Europeans, even French people, uh, who invented Impressionist art, uh, just coming in droves to Tokyo, Japan, to see French Impressionist art. Because despite coming from the place where this art originated from, they need to see where the art is right now. And Japan boasts one of the most extensive collections of Impressionist art in the world. So that's why places like Abu Dhabi are investing billions into building stuff like the Louvre Abu Dhabi. And I think um, something like a cultural district is very important. Um, to be more specific about M plus and the West Kowloon cultural district in general, I think it is a great idea, as I said. Um, without delving into the minutiae about how it was delayed since forever, for I think 20 years, uh, and how, how it's possibly a useful access point uh, with endless possibilities for Beijing, um, the idea of having a halo project like this um, that secures truckloads of funding is very good. Um, Hong Kong already has a few venues that can serve as centers for art and culture, such as PMQ, which I don't think was very successful, um, Tycoon, which I think is a lot more successful, but still somewhat lacking, and Art Asia, sorry, the Asia Society, uh, which is stuck somewhere in Admiralty next to the British consulate uh, where nobody really visits. So they're generally quite small, very disconnected, and very scattered. And I think with something like the West Kowloon Cultural District, uh, we might optimistically see something like the Bilbao effect, where uh, when the Guggenheim Bilbao first opened uh, in Bilbao, which is in the Basque country, um, you had a revitalization of the city and people visiting that place, uh, not just to do business, but to actually appreciate beauty uh, for what it is. Aside from starting way too late, I think uh, Hong Kong has also lost uh, quite a number of titans. For example, Sir David Tang, who single-handedly modernized and internationalized the Shanghainese Chengs um, and founded the China Club. 
I also wonder if the private patronage of art is still alive and kicking. Do rich people still commission art as they did back in the Renaissance with the Medici? Or does art nowadays live on public money only? Um, I think that uh, patronage, as we call it, is still very much alive in the art world. I think that um, the notion of government-funded art or publicly-funded art is actually rarer than art that is motivated for, say, profit or uh, other private motives. If an artist is doing something because they feel that it will be a lucrative venture, then certainly they're not doing it with funding or for funding, but they're doing it because they feel that it will sell to a private audience. And as for um, families like the Medici, who were famous for sponsoring art, they still exist in our world today, perhaps not in the form of families uh, back in the Italian city-states times, but as wealthy collectors who will reach out to the studios of these prestigious artists and still offer something a bit more personal. But why do rich people want to commission art? What is going on in their heads? Like, what do they get out of it? And if they do, like, what is the interaction between the rich person, the, pa the patron and the artist? Do they sometimes go like, oh my God, I really don't like what you've produced. You've really bungled it up. Like, what goes on in their heads? Why do they uh, put money into these things? Sometimes rich people want crazy things. Uh, and the same reason why people want to control the narrative by buying social media companies or newspapers, art is a very, very potent and powerful way of projecting a message without saying anything. Uh, and sometimes the wordiness and the loquaciousness of written media is simply not strong enough to overpower a strong image that evokes emotion. So one reason could be that. I don't think it's the main reason, but let's get that out of the way. Um, another could be simply just a, a desire for something beautiful. Because when you buy art, you are buying a portion of the artist's life, um, their experiences, their philosophies, and what they feel. It's pretty much the same thing as buying a book by say Marcus Aurelius, a guy who's dead, or by a person that you like that is still alive. Um, except for that an artwork is usually a lot more personal than the book, because unless you are buying a first edition J.R.R. Tolkien hand-drawn edition of a Lord of the Rings book, um, you're not buying something that directly was produced by the artist's hand, right? Whereas an artwork is a kind of soliloquy of, of, of a sort uh, on a canvas. And so if you really like the artist's message, their life story, and if it resonates with you, certainly you would want to buy their artwork. And if possible, you might even want to sponsor them so that they can get a wider appreciation amongst people um, in art fairs or in museums and whatnot. That's also kind of why a lot of collectors um, who are collectors of means take up very important roles in um, art trusts and foundations and public art museums. And that's also another point of controversy because that leads to um, an asymmetrical weighing of opinions based on how important they are in the art world. And uh, to add a last point, they could be doing it for some, some form of nationalism or pride for a certain style. Certainly the Chinese buyers who were buying Dozai chicken cups 
um, were paying millions of dollars, not because they genuinely felt that a cup with a chicken on it was worth that much, but they were doing it because, in part because they wanted to increase the global standing of Chinese antiques and an appreciation for Chinese art. So in a way, um, they're doing it to make the market. I'm sure you have seen some of the art that is coming out in the crypto industry. Do you know any names or well, something? Uh, I think I'm familiar with the the apes, the monkeys, um, and the many variations therein. I think there were also a few mutant guys as well, as well as a bunch of unsanctioned offshoots of that project. I think there was also Azuki, uh, which was, I think, a bit more warmly received by even your average crowd. And of course, you have uh, certain individual names, um, not studios, who produce one of one art, which I think is probably the most interesting part of the NFT scene. So how do people in the traditional art world and auction houses react to this new type of um, object? How do they react to it? How did they I react? think the art world reacted, and I can't speak for everyone, but I did observe this um, quite extensively. So if I were to comment on what I saw, I think they reacted in the same way that the general public reacted, except with perhaps a tinge more of professionalism and a tinge more of snobbery. So um, their reaction was pretty much equally distributed uh, as it was in the general public's response, but with perhaps more knowledge and more references to art history and with a higher nose, with, a, with more snobbishness. Um, so yeah, it's difficult for me to pinpoint whether they liked it or not. Certainly the auction houses were scrambling on the next opportunity to make a, an NFT auction. And I believe Christie's got into some hot water for selling some questionable um, NFTs. I believe one of them was even fake. Uh, I don't quite remember that incident. I was not working at the time, but yes. Uh, I think generally they understand that it is possibly a next step for the art industry. And myself included, a lot of people who uh, like art history as much as, if not more than art itself, were commenting about how it's one of the uh, only genuinely new things to happen in the art industry in the past hundred years. I'm, I'm sure the art industry has uh, seen something like this before. I'm sure they reacted almost quietly as antagonistically when they first saw um, Impressionism and extra ex expressionism and so on. But it's very interesting that you should say that this is the, the first new thing that they have seen in a hundred years. Was there a certain consensus in the art history before NFTs that um, history has, has ended? We have already seen everything. If that is the case, then certainly these new objects coming in must have caused a bit of a shock to how to understand and evaluate and even manipulate these things. You know, that is such a pertinent point. History has ended. Well, we don't say history has ended. We say that art has ended. And in fact, that is a real phrase that is used in, the, um, in art history. Um, do you by any chance know what modern art is about? No, I'm not particularly, um, I don't find art modern art particularly interesting. In, fi in fact, I find it um, distasteful, um, but I'm happy to learn a little bit more uh, to I be see. convinced um, otherwise. Well, I mean, this is, I have possibly 
10,000 years of art history weighing down on my shoulders uh, within this question because, um, man, where do I start on this? Well, let's just start with where we started, which is where um, you asked me, why is it new? Why is it the first new thing to happen in the past century or so? And I use um, my dates quite um, loosely. So it could be two centuries or I don't really know. But the reason I say new is because now we have a way of actually attaching something else to art other than the artwork itself. If you bought a work of art back in the day, it almost always just came with the artwork itself, maybe a frame and some, some form of ledger or a written document to prove that it was actually bought and paid for. And even the latter was not always present. It wasn't, it was a, it was an accessory to the main art piece. So in other words, it was just art back in the day, but now you have matrix code that is embedded into this. And not only that, when it is combined with the ability to trade virtual money for it, maybe you don't like that term, uh, or cryptocurrency uh, for it. Now you have a seamless integration of alternative forms of art that are not traditional oil on canvas types that can be traded completely natively within a digital space. So for example, um, have you watched the 1988, was it Japanese film Akira? Absolutely yes, of course, beautiful of movie, isn't it? Um, and I challenge anyone to come up to me and say that that is not art. I don't think anyone would. You look at Japanese animation from the 80s and 90s, it's stuff of gobsmacking, jaw-dropping beauty. But how does one trade that kind of art, right? The only way to do it was, say, go to a movie theater and watch it. But that's not really art, right? It's a movie. Well, that goes into the question of what is art. But I think it's certainly, no matter how you define it, it's not art in the traditional sense where it can be bought and sold and owned, right? So if you have stuff like GIFs or videos or uh, clips or even music, things that could not be owned per se um, back in the day, this form of cryptocurrency allows you to actually trade it and sell it and put a name on it. I don't know if I'm being clear, but um, to wrap up my ramblings, it's about being able to natively contain both the means of paying for an art and the art itself within digital space. And that thing is just new, even though computers have been around for um, arguably about 70 years now. So that's why I say that it's the first genuinely new one. And that also unearths the huge amounts of beautiful digital art that we have trapped in our computers that may have been simply cast away as doodles and scribbles back in the day. Now they can be finally traded without having to be printed, which I think ruins the experience of digital art. If I were to add a small little um, complaint of mine, it's that whenever I print my digital artworks, they don't come out the way that I expect them because usually our screens are brighter than paper itself. So my shades of gray turn into just jet black, no matter how expensive of a printer I use. So now we have an era of art where something is best enjoyed in the digital space. And that has 
immense consequences or implications rather for the longevity of art. I think that the fact that it does not exist in any material form makes it invincible and immortal. Because if you have a crazy, say, environmental activist uh, throwing tomato soup on a work of art at the Louvre, if you're unlucky and it's not protected by a glass cover, it's probably going to get damaged. And now you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in trying to repair the artwork and desperately trying to turn it back to its original condition. But even if you have, say, an airstrike on an NFT exhibition, as long as the servers aren't all down, you're going to have the exact same thing ready to go on another monitor. It's like uploading your conscience onto a mainframe or onto the internet. You just cannot die. And I think that's so exciting for the art industry in general and for how we view art. That reminds me of some of the other possibilities that digital art is capable of that is just not possible in the material world. For example, you can now um, create paintings that you can keep on zooming in indefinitely and you can have infinite detail and this is all something that you can program. For example, um, you can have the Mandelbrot set, a fractal, which you can just keep on zooming in, zooming in. Has, it has a very intimate connection with math mathematics and almost the best, um, the most sacred forms of digital art are not necessarily created, but discovered uh, as mathematical objects. If, uh, the, the example that I like to use the most is that imagine if the Mandelbrot set or the Julia set was not discovered by Mandelbrot uh, while he was scribbling, but was discovered like last year when somebody was playing around with Solidity code. The guy who discovered it would have been labeled as an artist, but really what he was doing, he wasn't creating, he was just discovering some stuff and he presented it as a aesthetically beautiful object. There's a philosopher called Yok Ho from Hong Kong who wrote extensively about digital objects way before crypto became a thing. One of the most interesting properties about uh, crypto is that you can program these little objects to have specific properties so they can continue to react, which is probably not something you have in, um, in traditional art or artistic objects. Let's talk a little bit about one-of-one one art. Uh, pieces that are, well, one-of-one, one, unique. They represent themselves. They are not part of a 8,000-strong monkey face collection. It's just one piece. And there may, may or may not be subsequent pieces that belong to the same collection artistically or any other aspects. So how do artists position themselves, design their pieces to play this one-of-one one NFT art game? Well, I think they do it by uh, branding themselves in the same way that any other artist would, even in a non-virtual space. And I think the fact that we are increasingly having... Um, no distinction between what's happening happening in the virtual space and non-virtual space is indicative of the diversity of NFT art. And that's really a good thing because I think, if I remember correctly, during the, uh, the peak of this uh, crypto scene, there were just infinite factory reproductions of Bored Ape adjacent PFP style stuff that were being produced in droves of legions of thousands of um uh, of pieces and i think now um the industry is kind of settling into where crypto art or uh, nfts in general are best utilized which is one of one art and they can usually utilize some form of community to um, 
make their art better or to cater to a certain demographic or a certain type of people. Um, sometimes you even have art that is governed by um, their collector base. Like you can decide what kind of art the uh, artist will produce next based on certain themes or some form of uh, mutual agreement. And I think the possibilities are just endless and it's, it's anyone's game at this point. So it's difficult for me to answer that satisfactorily. We briefly touched upon the topic of modern art, and there's clearly much that is unexplored on that topic. So let us go there. As I said, I'm not the biggest fan of this genre. I find uh, much of it aesthetically repulsive, philosophically vapid, and emotionally uninspiring. Having said that, I must confess that there are exceptions that manage to tickle me and appeal to me. For example, Zhao He, a Shanghai-born, Paris-trained abstract impressionist painter who somehow managed to graphically depict what Tai Gek might visually look like. Xu Bing, who toyed with Chinese characters, and perhaps even my friend Mizuki Nishiyama, whose work uh, boldly explores modern femininity in her abstract impressionist, impressionist paintings. But I can't help that most of what we have today is really just pretentious, unskilled, vulgar nonsense. I find Andy Warhol boring, Bansky uninspiring, Kusama childish and perplexing, Pollock laughable, and people outright repulsive. How did we arrive at this uh, paradoxical state of affairs? Isn't art about beautiful things? How is it that we have come to call almost anything art? Is this what the weight of 10,000 years of art history has come down to? The first thing I have to ask you is, um, what do you mean by modern art? What is modern art? I would understand modern art as anything that is not um, particularly realistic. So then you might ask me, what about um, Salvador Dali? What about um, abstract, impression, uh, abstract impressionism? How is, uh, what is the demarcation line between abstract impressionism and uh, Monet's impressionism? Um, that is kind of a difficult question, but I feel, I, I do feel that when you transcend into only the realms of shapes and colors and not the depiction of objects anymore, then I feel we have entered a different world. And that is a world that makes me feel art has taken a wrong turn. Hmm. Well, to get the, uh, the terminology out of the way, Modern art, as far as um, people in art understand it, includes the works of Van Gogh, Klimt, Seurat, Matisse, Cezanne, Manet, Munch, and, and so many others like Francisco Goya, uh, who we now unequivocally, unequivocally regard as the classics. And it refers to art produced in the 19th century onwards. Whereas I think contemporary art is the word you may be looking for which refers to art produced in about the 1940s, post-World War II, uh, to this day on. And so I think a key distinction is not only the time, but uh, here I'm borrowing a phrase that I heard from uh, some other people, that modern art challenges how we represent things, while contemporary art challenges what art is. Again, modern art challenges how we represent things, but contemporary art challenges what art is. So modern art was like, how do we depict this 
sometimes differently to go against uh, convention or sometimes to go with it. Whereas contemporary art is, aha, I attached a banana to a wall. That is art. Or is it? So that's the key distinction. And again, I think um, a lot of people conflate abstract art with uh, uh, contemporary art. And even though uh, sometimes I share in the disdain towards art that has gone, let's say, to the hills, um, abstract art is absolutely not a modern or contemporary phenomenon. It has existed since time immemorial. And in fact, um, I think I'll revisit this point several times in my, in my tirade, but um, abstract art was the first kind of art. So either way, um, modern art, or more accurately, contemporary art, isn't very well received today. And I think that's what the spirit of your question is, right? So there are countless memes about contemporary art, and it's now expected to see an outright mockery of ridiculous art ex exhibitions of artists every now and then, right? I mean, just this morning, I was on YouTube, and uh, YouTube recommended that I rewatch a, a most riveting performance by Yoko Ono, um, who was screaming into a microphone, absolutely violating the microphone for about two minutes straight back in 2010 in the middle of the Museum of Modern Art. And I think that alone is an artistic video which perfectly encapsulates um, the state of contemporary art. But allow me to ask a question. How do you think we got here? Is it really... Is it because that artists have ran out of ideas? And maybe it's also got to do with the war, the two wars that broke a lot of the artists' uh, emotional well-being. They become completely and utterly disillusioned. The tastemakers that were the, um, the aristocracy got obliterated. So you have a new uh, realm of uh, possibilities that you can explore. Uh, you also, I think, I, I sometimes genuinely think that monetary policy had, uh, had a role to play here, especially after the Nixon shock, where money became uh, de-pegged uh, from gold, where the gold standard was removed. Um, maybe it's also the chain, it has also got to do with the changes of um, how you teach people about art. Just like um, in architecture, the old masters in classical architecture were swept away and in came the new, new professors who then cemented and consolidated their places through tenure in the architectural schools and they start preaching with their own ideas. Well, I think every single explanation that you have uh, posited uh, is, is workable and I think there is bounds of truth in that. Um, so you mentioned the war. Um, specifically, I think World War II had a very large impact on, on art, and that's an understatement. Certainly, it was the, the victory of the Americans was not just the victory of the Americans, it was victory of Europe. But along with that also came the victory of communism and of the Soviet Union, because you have to remember that the Western world wasn't the only one that won the war. And with the era that that ensued after the end of the war, there was an abject rejection of tyranny, of authoritarianism, of anything that fettered what the Western world saw as freedom. There was a, 
unprecedented emphasis on freedom of expression, on freedom of movement, and freedom of being whoever they want it to be. So that could definitely be one of the aspects of this. And certainly, once you start defining art, you cannot not venture into some form of tyranny, of some form of authoritarianism. And certainly the Nazis did not skimp on this because um, I believe they used the term uh, degenerate art or entatete uh, Kunst, um, if my German is correct, to refer to artwork that did not fit their ideals. Certainly, they liked aesthetic things. We all comment about Nazi architecture or the Hugo Boss uniforms. Those are pretty snazzy. But saying that something is art and something isn't necessitates a form of authority. And post-World War II, Europe and America was kind of all against that, I would say. So out of the many possible explanations that we can um, meander through for hours, I'd just like to explore one that crosses my mind at the moment, which is um, a revisitation of the point uh, of the end of art and the end of history, right? It's that around the time that modern art uh, developed, which was around the 19th century to um, the 20th century, um, and this is a Eurocentric point of view, but then again, modern art is largely a European creation. So we, ha we had seen, or they had seen enough fluctuations in art style of um, eras of art for them to make sweeping observations about historical trends and um, artistic philosophies and aesthetic philosophies. So they were observing from a very retrospective standpoint about the total history of art, straight from the genesis of art, which they thought were cave paintings and petroglyphs in places like Lascaux, right? And this is kind of around the era when uh, primitiv primitivism was in vogue. And of course, they thought that the, they regarded the Africans to be a primitive people. So their, uh, an interest in African masks was also born during this era. So what they regarded as primitive and old school was seen to be very interesting. The natural course of thinking is that if something has a start, something must have an end, right? So if art started from the caves, where does it end? Modern art was often regarded by its own adherents and by its own practitioners, even those who didn't really regard themselves to be modern artists, uh, as the kind of end of art. And that's why your question about the end of history is very, very perplexing and interesting. And it kind of reminds you about how Marxist Hegelians and people who subscribe to, say, uh, Fukuyama speak about the end of history in a historiographical and political sense and social sense. And this is a sort of thinking that sees the history of art and history itself and other forms of human endeavor as a line and a line that must come to an end somewhere because it started somewhere. And usually at the end of this is endless abstraction because forms keep getting simpler. They keep on, keep on getting distorted. You have the rise of Dadaism and Cubism, which just flirted with the, uh, with the very definition of what it is to be figurative and what form is. And eventually you had people, many types of people, including Duchamp himself, saying that, ah, my art is the last painting in history, or that this is truly the end of art. Of course, it's hilarious how they preceded and succeeded another, which means that the ends of art history has, has happened more than a thousand times within a span of a few years. So I think that's pretty ironic. What's more ironic, in my opinion, is that usually at the end of that line was, as I said, endless abstraction, 
which goes back to square one. Because if you look at the caves of Lascaux or the petroglyphs in Pangude in Ulsan, Korea, you will see endless abstraction, where a single swirl represents the breath of the heavens and the breath of life, or a single horizontal line represented the great plains or land itself. If that is not endless abstraction, then what is? And is it really a line if it goes back to where it started? If not a circle, it certainly isn't a line, right? So now contemporary artists don't necessarily see it this way. And I think generally there's an understanding that no longer can we just say that only art with no function other than art itself is art. And anything can be art, even if it's not beautiful. That's the consensus today. In a way, I think it's poetic because if art is just beautiful stuff in general, uh, which is how we define it, a, a line of code or a math formula could be art to the right people. And I'm sure many programmers, mathematicians, and nerds will agree on this. So the counterfactual is that only some things are art and some things are not. And that's very difficult to prove. So if, if you are obsessed with definitions, which I think, uh, ironically, contemporary uh, art people are because they say that they don't want a definition. And in doing so, they discuss definitions more than anybody else. If so, therefore, if definitions matter to you and anything beautiful is art or only some things are art, then I think that, well, it's more easily defensible to say that absolutely everything and anything can be art, even the most gruesome of things. And that's why we have the saying that aesthetics aren't necessarily beautiful. Um, I personally am not quite um, caught up uh, or concerned with the um, taxonomy of art. I, I don't concern myself with whether something can be considered art or not. I just consider whether it is beautiful or artistic to me. And I think that is the right approach for people to take because, well, it's all just you. And if art is a world of endless possibilities, then it's up to you to define what appeals to you, even if it's not beautiful, maybe it's poetic to you, maybe it resonates with you. But ultimately, it is you that decides. And I think that is the true beauty of the art scene today. Not everything that they say is good, is good for you. And that's the part that not a lot of people understand, because you have pretentious people pretending to understand art that quite literally may mean nothing by contemplating and musing in front of a slather of shit on a canvas and pretending that they elicit some form of personal philosophical meaning out of it. Those are the people who are more problematic than the artists who simply express an idea that they have inside their heads uh, because everyone expresses an idea in some way or form and that can be art, right? So the onus is on having a proper and well-educated and appreciative base of um, collectors and the general public rather than honing artists to produce art in a certain way. I also strongly believe that people don't really know beauty until they see it. Not everyone is capable of producing beauty and beautiful things to the same capacity. But I think that everyone has a faculty for appreciating art, even though that may also differ uh, among people. So when that, with that being said, I think that a system which facilitates the most varied types of art possible, i.e. throwing an infinite possibility of artistic ideas to the general public, 
is the absolute best way to find out what is beautiful or not. You might find tear-jerking po uh, poetry inside a single line painting made by a Japanese Zen monk in the 15th century that you will not find in, say, a very complex drawing of an aerial view of New York. And certainly for me, the former is more poetic than the latter, and I have seen both. So that, that's my two cents on it. How would you imagine life to be in an age where art has ended? It would be a world where art exists, but it is stagnant and unevolving. I think it, it might look a little bit like China, with Chinese characters, which basically didn't evolve since the Han Dynasty 1,800 years ago. I am sure that if you asked the Chinese literati uh, back in the, say, what was the haughtiest era, era of Chinese history? Shall we say, um, let's say the Han Dynasty at its territorial peak, or the Song Dynasty with its uh, vast bounds of uh, literary tradition. If you showed the literati back then, uh, Manyogana, or Hyangchal, or Hiragana, Katakana, Idu, and Kugyal, or Chunom, they would scoff, most likely. I, I cannot speak for people who died a thousand years ago, but... They, and, we, and we, we have records of know... uh, people adjacent to the literati scoffing at any small variation of Chinese characters. And we all know what happened to even Chinese attempts to perhaps change um, the, the writing system up until, say, Mao, which is the guy who, I guess, had the most revolutionary take on Chinese characters for a long time in Chinese history. So in the same way, you have art industry... Um, oldies, or people who do not feel comfortable with new things, scoffing at the whole idea of NFTs. And I think a part of it is genuine in that they still genuinely don't see the value of these kinds of projects. But a large part of it is fear, because the very type of industry that has fed them and clothed them and housed them for the past a few decades of their lives is now about to get into a genuine paradigm shift, and not only a paradigm shift that they're prepared for, but one that literally speaks a different language from them. Back in the day, it used to be suave businessmen who uh, took the role of art curators or art salesmen to use their silver tongues to persuade people to buy. Now it's written in code, which an English speaker would probably not understand. So. I think a lot of it is that. It's a bit of academic haughtiness. It's a bit of um, genuine, say, lack of understanding. And a bit of it is, well, yeah, fear. Would you say that the art establishment is, well, not frightened, but challenged by the birth of MITs and digital art, which probably requires very different skill sets for one to appreciate and well, appraise. The art is not the picture, the picture is not the art. The value of one piece of digital art lies not just in its visual aestheticality, but also the skill and historical context in which it was made, right? The autoglyphs are beautiful, and they continue to enjoy three-digit e-floors because they are generated entirely on-chain, they are the first, and the code was made within a certain historical context in an evolutionary history of solidity. 
CryptoPunks are valuable because they preceded the advent of the ERC721 standard. I would say, although the types of skills necessary in the appraisal work of digital art is the same as in traditional art, the skills themselves are different. Instead of knowing the historical context of the Renaissance, you need to know about the historical context of crypto and its various debates and evolutionary strands, the evolution of solidity and uh, different ERC standards. Instead of expertise in the chemical composition of oils and paints, you need expertise in smart contract engineering, the differences in uh, decentralized storage solutions. And instead of knowing which Italian city-states sponsored who, you need to learn about who were the big crypto players whose portfolio taste makes the entire market. So does the art establishment feel challenged by all this familiar yet radically different set of skills necessary for them to penetrate this market? New Absolutely. Stuff. I mean, even our generation and the generation below has difficulty speaking the language of the developers or understanding the code therein. And, and so you cannot expect 50 to 60 year old, year old people who have comfortably been sitting at the top of the art industry um, to suddenly adopt this. Of course, there are certainly exceptions, but um, it's, it's very daunting for these people. And I sympathize with them as well. And of course, um, these are all, some of these people are people who have been criticizing even contemporary art for uh, the longest time. And so if someone is so classically inclined, um, then I think that it would be difficult for them to accept something as groundbreaking as crypto art. But that's not necessarily true either, because um, crypto art doesn't have to be contemporary or abstract in style. It can be the most classical thing you can imagine, but simply produced to a digitally uh, native standard. So I think yeah, it's difficult for me to speak for those people. And I can't say that I'm familiar with their ideas because I've talked to a limited number of them. But if I were to speculate, I'd say you're right. I want to talk a little bit about another new technology that has been impacting the art world. Um, so artificial intelligence, oh, image generation. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, public interest in AI-generated art was absolutely explosive. Many writers such as myself now use AI-generated images to decorate and embellish uh, their writings. I also noticed that a lot of folks somehow like to generate images in Renaissance styles. For example, Eric Verhees' um, essay, A Response to SPF and Principled Crypto Regulation, includes a quaint little image generated by the prompt, A Free City in the Future, Prosperous, Classical Artwork Style, uh, Renaissance. It seems that a lot of people like to apply the grand classical styles to modern subjects. Perhaps they are nostalgic because we don't see many of that anymore. And now there's a way to easily and readily mass produce um, paintings of um, in this style. So it certainly gives a lot of freedom to the ordinary individual in generating art that they themselves want, but artists and the so-called tastemakers may not be willing to supply. Do artists fear that they might one day become mere office droids, where instead of Excel, they have mid-journey, and instead of, you know, 
Excel formula. They have prompts that they put together and edit. Um, I'm definitely not the person to talk to when it comes to artificially uh, generated art or AI generated art because I don't feel that I know enough to talk about this. But uh, surely we can explore the possibilities and the implications, uh, even with my limited knowledge. So, is it a threat? Absolutely. Um, that doesn't make it a bad thing, but it is a threat. And if AI art matures at the speed uh, it is right now, I see it as only natural that many artists and even more importantly, illustrators will be put out of business uh, in the decade to come. And that's because a lot of what they do is generated by their brain with perhaps uh, not a lot of human input either. They take orders from um, their clientele or people who um, task them with task them with uh, drawing something, and then they fulfill the uh, the, the consigner's wishes, right, or the uh, the client's wishes, and that's exactly what artificial intelligence art does. So people who simply draw to create an image of something are definitely threatened, and I understand that this will have great implications in the art and illustration industry as well. Um, why will it, why will people generally prefer hyper-realistic images? And is it an implication that people want this kind of art? I'd say no. Um, I'd say that the reason people are looking for hyper-realistic images is because what they actually want is a photo. Um, they're not looking for art. Usually a lot of them are looking for something that is as close to a picture or a photograph as possible because a large part of this AI art culture is still based in memes and, and what you can do with the possibility of combining um, the power of an AI engine with your imagination. And as our current social situation would have it, that usually tra translates into memes. Um, as for another reason why they might prefer hyper-realistic art, or I would say naturalistic art, is because that is the most conventionally and widely understood style of art. Uh, again, going back to my point, how people don't really know what they want or what is beautiful until they see it, is that people are generally wired to appreciate things that closely resemble what we have in nature. And that's why we appreciate naturalism, or as people would say, realism. But when someone comes up with an interesting art style, um, then people are motivated to look in the other direction because even though it doesn't resemble um, nature itself, it resembles an abstraction of it. And in a way, every single art is an abstraction of something that actually exists because you're not drawing it um, to the finest and most accurate detail. So I think that when an artist uses AI engines or machines to... Uh, to draw art, they won't necessarily do it in a hyper-realistic fashion. I'm not so sure that things will be as bleak as you make it. Um, AI may be able to mass-produce images of a certain config, but someone still has to specify and configure the configs. And that is where design comes in. That is where human beings come in. Um, AI also requires human stewardship when tasked to approach certain subjects, and stable and precise configuration requires a steady human hand. For example, it took some time and a lot of experimentation before the key to creating 
consistent human characters with mid-journey was discovered, I believe by Nixon Pierce. He did a thread on this on Twitter. You, to do this, um, the way he described it is that you first have to supply a seed image of your character, of the person that you're trying to embed into the pictures. You need to generate some images with the, uh, with the AI, and then you feed these images into the engine again, with uh, accompanied with fine-tuning prompts. So you edit the prompts so you can direct and steer the AI towards the um, images that you like. You do this recursively until you arrive at something that you're satisfied with. It's almost like that creepypasta loop where later images inherit memories from earlier images and they feed on, uh, feed on the images before to supply new ones. I also think there's a legitimate question, an almost philosophical question, as to whether AI can generate new styles, new aesthetics. Can it invent new aesthetics? Artists can, and, and I think this is where artists will still retain a unique role. I mean, can artificial intelligence invent steampunk out of thin air? Can they understand what dark academia is just by descriptions of Oxford and Cambridge and grand libraries with uh, dark rooms and uh, candle lights? Like, if you feed the engine with J.R.R. Tolkien's description of Rivendell and Lothlorien, will they be able to f perform? How could an AI understand an aesthetic without ever seeing it, or with by with just words? I think words often fail to convey with precision the visual subtleties of aesthetics, and that is where I believe artists will always have a role to play. In fact, I think the job of artists will shift from being manufacturers to inventors. Well, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to slightly revisit the whole AI thing a bit. Because I think um, certainly the end is not nigh yet, but certainly there will be very potent winds of change. And not a lot of people like change as much as they uh, say they do. And artists who uh, live off of this are definitely not in that category right they're, they're not people who welcome change because their life is on the line or their livelihood is on the line um even though i agree that ai art probably won't be as ground shaking as some people believe um, when i was talking to a bunch of illustrators uh, a few weeks ago they were commenting the exact same thing you said that it would make their work easier but they would be uh, degraded or demoted into a role uh, of an editor rather than a creator. And I think that also, yes, uh, that, that as well, but also a very enjoyable part of the creative process. Um, and of course, this is very dependent on exactly what kind of generative logic that the AI uses. And, and we certainly haven't seen um, the end of AI engines and what they can do. We, this is the beginning. But um, I believe that, as far as I understand it, it would give more credence and more weight to pre-existing styles of art rather than to force people to uh, uh, do their own thing. And if you start editing an AI image, the majority of the image is already set. You are simply uh, fixing some of the wanky stuff like the hands. AI is terrible at doing hands, right? It's the identifying the shibboleth of, say, uh, we can say. Uh, of AI art versus human-generated art. So I think 
On the contrary, it would actually take away from the artist's individual style. Of course, if they wanted to focus on an art career separate from AI, as, as you said, they would have to do something entirely new. And I trust that the human brain still has a lot of gas left in it, a lot of juice left in it to um, do a lot more creation before AI and robots completely take over us. But yeah, I think uh, this change is something that inspires fear in many people in this industry. I guess there is good reason for us to worry about how generative AI is going to change the nature of the illustrator's work. I suppose management who are not terribly artistically inclined will start asking their illustrators questions like, why are you drawing by hand? Why are you using Photoshop? Why are you using Adobe? Why are you drawing in like a old person? Why not just use mid-journey like any, how any other sane person would? I suppose um, this will really reduce the artist's job into a mere prompt editor, a writer, a tester, a configurer, and it would just make their life miserable and it would take the joy out of it. And also agency and control over the creative process. Before, art was something that was entirely up to the, uh, um, the creative mind of the artist, save for perhaps a few supervisions by um, the, the people who commissioned this. Uh, but now there is a system that takes the labor out of it and thus they are justified in perhaps paying you less or giving you less opinion on uh, how this will go forward. And I imagine that for some things, you won't even need to consult an artist. You won't even need to see an artist because if you're producing a YouTube thumbnail, um, these days they're often illustrated, right? If you go to those history channels that I love to watch, um, a lot of them use these uh, artist-drawn images and to be honest, usually they're quite poor. Uh, and so sometimes I would prefer AI do that um, instead. And if I were to think from a point of view of a person who isn't an artist, I would also rather prefer to use AI than to pay an artist and wait for them to produce something over the span of a week or a month rather than AI that, sure, I might have to sift through, them, through some things, but ultimately um, it's less of a hassle. Um, I have a question for you, actually. Um, so I was meandering across history forums, as I usually do. And these days, I'm quite interested in um, Afrocentrism and in, the, in a way that many activists claim that, say, for example, the first Asians were actually black. And accompanying a post like this was an image of people with very black skin color but with so-called Asian or mongoloid features, such as epicanthic folds and low nose bridges. And this actually stems from photos from back in the day where the color grading of black and white photos would make people appear totally jet black in skin color. But these were AI-generated images, and there were thousands of comments below exalting how um, this is proof that the first Asians were black and the excellence of black civilization. Um, if I were to word it in a way that is a bit more, say, politically correct, so you can edit this out, I would say there are so many ways to forge photographs right now using AI. And also, this technology will grow even better in the future. So is it possible to use um, matrix code or some kind of information attached to a photograph to verify its authenticity? For example, oh, this is a real photo. It is not AI generated. Is, is there a way to do that? 
So the question is, are there ways to tell if an image is generated by AI? Um, I'm not a AI engineer, so I'm not up to date uh, on the latest developments and I probably can't speak much to it about its technicalities. But if I had to venture a guess, I'd say yes. I think right now humans still stand a decent chance at differentiating the human drawn from the AI generated just by our own eyes. But I'm not too sure that will hold up for long. I think there are or will be technologies that can tell if an image is AI generated because we already have programs that can tell if a text is AI generated. So, so we have that technology for texts. I don't know if we have technologies for um, images, for text in, in particular. Some of these technologies are just classical forensic steganography. So the same kind of data analysis that allowed us to conclude whether the dream of the red chamber was written by uh, one author or multiple authors. Sometimes it could be just classical uh, forensic steganography, but that is sort of an overkill. It could be something really simple, like the AI uh, that is generating the text could be coded such that it would just put markers into the text it generates so that programs can easily identify if the text was AI generated. For example, they might double space after every word that ends with a T. Um, I'm sure you can do something like that with images, like you change the pixel uh, you change a single pixel at every single picture that you generate with the AI. Or you can also use signatures. I think if I fed an AI engine enough information of my artwork, um, it would be able to one day reliably mimic my style. And to me, that is an interesting proposition because it kind of connects back to what I said about uploading your conscience Onto, um, an inter onto the internet, right? For deceased artists who can no longer produce stuff, this would be quite useful if we wanted to see how, say, Van Gogh would have seen the world. And ultimately, art is about how the artist expresses themselves uh, through their own eyes. So even for me as an artist, it is difficult for me to um, reproduce what is inside my mind because my hands are not that good. And I don't think the majority of artists um, are, are completely able to translate what goes on in their mind to paper or to iPad or something. And I think sometimes with enough information, the AI engine will do a better job of envisioning what I have in my mind than my own hands. And I think this goes back to what art is itself, because this brings me back to discussions about whether art that is made by an artist studio is actually um, that artist's work. Murakami Takashi uses this, but so did um, Jeff Koons, who rarely has any kind of actual input into the creation of his pieces. And of course, Damien Hirst, he doesn't draw his own circles. He has a circle woman for that. And so did uh, Rembrandt even. So, if art is about more about the idea and the image itself rather than the execution and the technical stuff, which is a consensus that I think a lot of people in art today have, then certainly AI could be a very useful tool for salvaging beauty out of even the most artistically untalented minds. And I think that's quite interesting. This is one of our last questions. Can you tell us more about your art? How do you plan to leverage crypto to build a portfolio of artwork? What is your plan as an artist? Ooh, this is a 
difficult question for me not to ramble on. <laughs> uh, to try to keep it a bit succinct, I would say that digital art is where I truly find uh, my full potential. That's the first thing. Um, and digital art does not necessarily mean NFT or crypto art. But as I said before, these two things are inextricably related to each other because I believe that there is no better platform for, um, for disseminating, for advertising, and for delivering and buying digital art than NFTs and cryptocurrency. So that's one connection that I would like to make. The reason that digital art is so good for me is because, first of all, I'm a lazy guy. So um, I think it definitely does make things a little faster to draw on uh, an iPad. And second of all, the colors in my mind pop better on a screen than on paper, usually. Uh, I still don't like the feeling of drawing because I think that I am a more adept artist on paper and parchment uh, or canvas than uh, on a screen. But I think the end result is a bit more agreeable to me, uh, especially given that usually I'm only willing to put in a certain amount of time for each piece. So for three hours of work, simply put, I get more return out of digital art than um, art on paper. That's one thing. The main type of art that I'm trying to do is to explore Northeast Asian culture and perhaps just East Asian culture in general through the means of an online community and the vast possibilities that cryptocurrency may offer. I think there are certainly so many talented creators who produce this kind of content and I would just like to join in on the fray. And I think that with communities becoming more important in our current, um, say, social climate, people who are like-minded, people who have similar interests, and people who want a sense of belonging, I think partaking in that is quite important as well. And when I come to think about it, um, people I met in my communities, yourself included, have enlightened me very much. So I would like to continue to reap the benefits of being amongst people who share interests such as linguistics, philosophy, history, and art, um, while also producing something that may be of interest to them. It's also good for selling as well, because I would much rather sell to a person that I am confident will appreciate my artwork, rather than a person who is unvetted and some random Joe, no matter how much money he's willing to spend on my artwork. So these are a few things. And I, I was kind of inspired in the community aspect, at least by my watch collecting escapades, because the watch community is um, somewhat similar as well. It's quite fragmented. There are people who have different interests like 1940s military watches or um, 1960s or 70s sports watches. They have their own little cliques and communities. And when we sell these vintage watches to each other, what's, more, what's most important is authenticity, uh, provenance and trust, because these things may be replicated and sometimes auction houses sell faulty products as well. So in the same vein that I would like to buy from someone who I trust and know personally, and I would also like to sell my prized possessions to those who I know will take good care of it, I would like to extend that same attitude towards my art 
more so my art than my watches because my art is they're they're my babies right and i would like for them to belong in worthy hands this is my last question to you can you describe for us in the best words you can how does your work look like what does it look like what can we expect well uh i never really had a way with words but um the series that i'm working on right now is called the uh 10 fantastic poems and i take great poems from japan korea several cinetic cultures uh and what not vietnam possibly i'm still not done with the series so the possibilities are uh, all up for grabs and i try to stand somewhere between naturalism while respecting the way that perhaps um our forefathers saw the world how they depicted flames how they depicted air or water or boulders while also being reasonably realistic and i think um this blend of naturalism with older modes of expression adequately represents exactly what they would have seen because the art of the time also influences your perception of the real world so perhaps that's a way of communicating history to modern audiences and it, to make it simple it just looks good in my opinion and honestly when it all comes down to one thing it's that i think that art needs to look good and i think this looks good so that's just my two cents So that is the end of our episode. Thank you for listening in. If you find this interesting, please follow us on Twitter, Spotify, and YouTube. We will be coming up with no more content to cover the latest developments in crypto and so on. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Pyrite Podcast. See you again very soon.